Hello and welcome to Eco Justice Radio here on 90.7 KPFK. My name is JP Morris and today we have an interview hosted by Jessica Aldridge. Jessica will be talking to Angelo Logan, the policy director for the Moving Forward Network out of the Urban and Environmental Policy Institute at Occidental College and co-founder of East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice. For 17 years, Angelo has been advocating for communities impacted by environmental racism in California and across the country. Serving on multiple boards and advisory committees, Angelo is able to provide important perspective through an environmental justice lens. Jessica will also be talking to Amina Maxi, U.S. and Canada Regional Coordinator for Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, also known as Gaia. Amina works to support communities that are fighting back against polluting industries and advocating for zero-waste alternatives. Her background is in environmental justice organizing and having worked for almost a decade in her hometown of Detroit, Michigan where she helped found the Zero Waste Detroit Coalition, where she organized against the Detroit Incinerator, one of the largest waste burners in the United States. So let's get on to our main event. You're listening to Eco Justice Radio here on 90.7 KPFK. Hello, you are listening to Eco Justice Radio on 90.7 KPFK. This is Jessica Aldridge from SoCal 350. Our show today is called We Can't Burn Our Way to Zero Waste, How Incineration is a Detriment to Social and Environmental Justice. In 2002, there was a group of environmental leaders that met in Geneva to form what is now called the Zero Waste International Alliance. Two years later, they created the internationally accepted definition of zero waste, a definition still used today. Now, I know that you might be thinking zero waste, that sounds impossible, but zero waste doesn't actually mean zero trash. It advocates a 90% or better diversion of your waste and is an economical and ethical goal defined by three pillars. First, it means all discarded materials are designed to become resources for others to use. Second, designing and managing products to avoid and eliminate toxicity, conserve and recover resources, and do not send them to be burned or buried, meaning incinerated or landfilled. And finally, by implementing zero waste, we are supposed to be eliminating discharges to land, water, or air that are a threat to human environmental health. So burning our trash, no matter how new and high-tech the facility may be, is in complete opposition to the meaning of zero waste. Our guests today are tackling this fiery beast of a problem worldwide, as well as right here in Southern California. Through their efforts, they are bringing light to the economic, environmental, and most importantly, the social justice impacts of incinerating our trash. It is my pleasure to welcome our guest today, Amina Maxi, U.S. and Canada Regional Coordinator for Gaia, Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, and Angelo Logan with Moving Forward Network and co-founder of East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice. Welcome you both, and thank you for being on EcoJustice Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So, Amina, tell me about the Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives and explain to our listeners what is the nature of incineration. There are so many forms it could take. Sure. So um, Gaia is a global network of grassroots organizations um, in over 90 countries, and they're a network of organizations and folks who are working to stop pollution from waste, particularly waste burning, you know, waste incineration and other forms of waste burning, and really pushing for zero waste alternatives. We 
believe strongly that no community is a sacrifice zone and that and um, no community should be the dumping ground for others' waste. And so as Gaia's U.S. and Canada regional coordinator, I focus here in this part of the globe, um, I really have the privilege of working with grassroots leaders like Angelo um, and others who are leading campaigns in their communities to shut down um, polluting waste incinerators, um, as well as folks who are advocating for zero waste or trying to keep a proposed facility out of their community. Um, there are, like you said, to give some background on the different uh, forms that incineration can take. An incinerator is a facility where commercial, residential, or hazardous waste is burned, and incineration can take the form of uh, waste-to-energy incineration. There's also technologies that are pushed that are called forms of thermal conversion, such as gasification, pyrolysis, or plasma arc. Uh, when it comes to um, municipal solid waste incineration, what you're, what's really happening is that incineration converts uh, materials such as like paper, plastic, metal, food, waste, into bottom ash, fly ash, combustion gases, air pollutants, wastewater, and wastewater treatment sludge and heat. And the types of incinerators in the U.S., you'll often hear that, you know, the, the incinerators of old are bad and dirty. You'll hear folks who are in the new industry say that, um, when really the facilities such as gasification, pyrolysis, and plasma arc um, have been around for 30 years and have a track record, just like the incinerators in the United States do, of being uh, polluting, of being economic failures for communities, of being cited in um, environmental justice communities and communities of color, and of really preventing communities from truly moving towards zero waste because they create a demand and a need for waste to burn. So I'll pause there. I could geek out on incineration and waste all day. Well, but so I'll stop there. Before we do that, um, how many incinerators, do you know how many incinerators are in the United States and, and here in California? Yes, yeah, a good question. So in the United States, um, there are 76 um, incinerators that burn municipal solid waste to generate electricity. Um, there were 77 up until recently when the commerce incinerator in where in Angelo's community, in the community of East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice, that just closed. And there are three incinerators in the in California. I'm sorry, two, uh, one in Long Beach and one in Stanislaus. Um, and just as in California, where they are in predominantly communities of color, working class, working poor communities, there are also many of the incinerators in the United States are also located in communities such as that, such as um, Newark, Detroit, Baltimore, Hartford, um, places like that. Yeah. Angelo, you have been working in this area for a long time. Please tell us about the work with Moving Forward Network as well as East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice. Sure. So um, so I work with the Moving Forward Network, which is a network of 50 organizations across the country. And we've been working to uh, improve and transform communities in and around uh, freight facilities. Um, but, you know, most of these communities um, are also impacted by a variety of other polluting facilities, such as incinerators or refineries or brownfields. So we, we deal with a lot of um, uh efforts to improve those communities and transform those communities from negative to positive. 
But an example of one of those communities is actually the community of East Los Angeles and City of Commerce, um, where um, we were just speaking of one of the uh, trash-to-power um, incinerators, um, where you have um, multiple facilities really concentrated in one specific area and having uh, over uh, really uh, over over uh, load of burdens onto the community. So the work that East Yard Communities has done for the last 17 or so years is it's been a collective effort to um, really transform the communities to not just um, work towards surviving, but really towards thriving communities. And so that means that we need to look at these uh, facilities that have been placed in our communities and really figure out how to transform or transition out of these polluting facilities into more sustainable community-driven uh, approaches to building a strong economy uh, that really is benefiting the local communities. And uh, Amina had mentioned that the commerce facility, uh, incineration facility, had um, been shut down. But that facility has been around since 1986. And in that time, it had numerous violations, including repeat em emissions issues. And I know that East Yard communities and others had um, even brought up legis uh, um, legality issues against them, right? Right. So over the last, you know, what is that, 30-some years? Is it 30 years? Yeah. What's the math on that? <laughs> um, uh, it has been really... Um, a, 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 a dark cloud over the community. And as you mentioned, there's uh, there have been a number of violations from the um, air regulations, uh, but there also have been violations both in control over um, uh, where they're sending the, the ash um, and their uh, wastewater uh, uh, handling as well. So there's been air quality plus wastewater plus landfill violations. Um, and, you know, the, the community um, has, has seen and looked at these particular violations, but, but mostly just the everyday uh, pollution that came out of that smokestack, even at the levels that they consider to be within the standard, has been a real burden, has been a real health threat to our communities. So, you know, at every step of the way, when we could and how we could, we've been a, we've uh, worked really hard to shine a light on those issues um, and have fought really hard to make sure that um, that subsidies and programs to continue the life of that facility would not continue because we know that this was not a benefit to the community, but was really a burden to our health. Exactly. Now, there's a lot of information out there um, about incineration facilities. Now they're being rebranded as waste to energy in regards to them having environmental benefits. And I, I have a personal pet peeve because every single like six months, there is this ingenious PR marketing firm that is working for some Swedish burn facility and maybe the Swedish government promoting all over social media about how Sweden is zero waste and that they have this really high recycling rates and they only burn a really tiny amount. But we know in this conversation right now that they're they're shipping in recyclable resources and waste from all over Europe just to feed this beast. I want to tackle the myths surrounding incineration. So first up to bat is, does it produce clean, renewable energy that emits less greenhouse gases than other heavy polluting energy sources like coal? That's a great question. So incinerators are non-renewable. Um, they burn waste which is a non-renewable resource. It's made up of paper, 
plastic and glass that are all that all come from you know our uh, natural resources, which are finite, such as forests, which are um, being depleted at unsustainable rates. In addition to that, um, and this is according to EPA data, incinerators, in order to produce the same amount of energy, incinerators re- release more carbon dioxide than a coal-fired power plant, um, more than an oil-fired po- oil-fired power plant and natural gas power plant. And so it's really um, being pushed as a false solution, as being pushed and trying to compare themselves to, you know, solar and wind, when in reality they are not renewable. They are extreme burdens on uh, communities, like Angelo said, that are already overburdened with, which, with a lot of air pollution. And as I said, all an incinerator does is it transfers um, pollution from one form into another. So if you take plastic out of the ocean and then you burn it, you're taking what was pollution in our water and you're still putting that pollution into the air, and you also still will have wastewater discharge as well. So you're just transferring what that pollution looks like. And then finally, in addition to being a non-renewable resource, they also have really harmful pollutants, you know, dioxins, PCBs, lead, particulate matter, arsenic, mercury, chromium, um, and just to paint a picture, the New York Department of Conservation found that the state's incinerators emit up to 14 times more mercury as their coal-fired power plants per unit of energy. And in 2009, New York State's incinerators emitted 36% more mercury than coal. I, I, I lay those facts out all just to say that they are it's really a, a form of greenwashing, and they just want to make money off of this sustainable and green revolution on the backs of um, communities. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Ecojustice Radio on 90.7 KPFK. We are here with Amina Maxi, U.S. and Canada Regional Coordinator for Gaia Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, and Angelo Logan with Moving Forward Network and co-founder of East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice. Now, we talked about the clean energy, um, that it's not a form of clean renewable energy, but it's also it's also more expensive, isn't it, than, than nuclear and coal and solar and wind, right? It is. Um, incinerators are one of the most expensive um, forms of energy generation. They, um, so a big portion of the, the capital costs for an incinerator are towards the pollution controls because they have such major pollution. Um, and they, they're more expensive than um, building a coal-fired power plant um, as well as um, nuclear. And so cost is, is something that is a real burden on communities. They've cost millions. And the city of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, was bankrupted by its incinerator debt. And the, I'm from Detroit, Michigan, and where I'm from, there's a, one of the largest incinerators in the country. And over $1.2 billion was spent, a billion with like a B, on its incinerator debt. And so it's really a, a costly, a costly uh, way of handling waste. If I, if I could also 
uh, chime in. Please. There's also the uh, externalized costs and kind of was alluded to that when these types of facilities are sited in already overburdened communities, um, you know, communities that are next to these facilities are paying through their lungs and through their health. And so there's the externalized costs. You, know, you got the um, lost school days, lost work days, and then the health costs, um, especially in these communities um, that um, that play a factor into it as well. And and, and they, as as the um, state uh, really try to um, work towards keeping these facilities open, moving towards incentives, you know, really putting tax dollars into play of a kind of really uh, uh, a technology and a operation that really would cost more to operate and using taxpayers' dollars uh, really is uh, in just uh, use of public dollars. And they're also, as we've mentioned before, they're they're disproportionately located in lower income communities and communities of color. So, and then, that is also the case for many types of other toxin emitting industries. So, you just have this compounding effect uh, that's happening in these communities. And what are some of the health issues that people are seeing? Yeah. So, one of the reasons that um, you know we work towards uh, putting together this collective effort that we call East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice um, was because of the elevated uh, cancer uh, cases in the community, the the amount of um, respiratory illnesses like asthma, bronchitis. Um, those are uh, a number of of issues that we've seen. Firsthand, but there are other things that you can't really put your finger on. But uh, reproductive health and uh, uh, the um, educational attainment uh, issues. So there's a whole bunch of uh, health impacts from being in close proximity to a, a toxic facility like this. And then you compound that with the other things like you know whether it's a battery remanufacturing. Uh, facility or whether it's a, a diesel source or whether that's groundwater contamination and uh, vapor intrusion into homes and schools, you know, all these things compound. And then when you put this together in this toxic soup, um, you have many, many health impacts, um, many more than I can probably name now. And what led... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry about that. But I think one thing I want to also to totally echo what Angelo is saying, that the air pollution controls that these facilities have, you know, they concentrate the pollutants, but they don't disappear. And so they're concentrated into the byproducts, so the ash, the slag. And in addition to that, there are forms of pollutants such as ultrafine particulate matter, which is currently uh, um, is not regulated or monitored by the EPA. It's so small. And that is, you know, those particles are lethal. They cause cancer, heart attacks, stroke asthma, pulmonary disease, and it's in the U.S. communities of color, low-income communities, um, that folks are exposed to this disproportionate burden of toxins. And they're just building up over years. And, and mm. yeah, and what led to, bring back to the Commerce facility, what led to the Commerce Burn facility to shutter its doors? I mean, was it already slated to close or was it, was there a uh, another issue of a financial issue, or that, or was it due to community pushback? What happened there? Yeah, I think it's actually a combination <clears throat> of factors. So, one is that, um, and I think I mean I can really touch on this more. the The financial feasibility of 
<clears throat> the facility uh, and its operations really wasn't viable. Um, over the years, um, you know, the county and the agencies that oversaw this facility articulated that uh, that it wasn't panning out, that it wasn't financially viable. And um, but for many reasons, uh, things like the greenwashing that you mentioned earlier, uh, the the state and other uh, champions wanted to continue to keep this facility and the other two facilities open through public subsidies and um, with a whole bunch of folks um, support East Yard communities and other EJ groups across the state worked really hard to make sure that bills that would create dollars to incentivize and keep the doors open at these facilities um, would, would not would not pass, would not allow for our public dollars to be used to continue the operations that would continue to burden our communities. And as those dollars, you know, as they attempted over years to um, leverage those dollars to subsidize this facility, um, you know, eventually I think that door closed. And when that door closed, there was no money to keep the facility going. And as the facility kind of looked at that cliff, um, and realized that at a certain point it would it would not be feasible to continue to operate. Um, you know the uh, JPA that oversees that um, really took to the public's concern around the operation of this facility and pushed really hard. Actually, the City of Commerce City Council uh, passed um, resolutions uh, and decisions to um, vote to continue to. C- to close the facility and then push at the JPA level and uh, identified a date certain for its closure. And Amina, they were going after state renewable energy subsidies, weren't they? They were. So they, the, the incineration industry in California has been pushing really hard to support the existing incineration fleet. There was a, there was a push last year through AB 655 for the, um, incinerators in California to be able to qualify as a form of renewable energy, as Angelo said. And there was a major push, pushback by the environmental justice and environmental community against that. And then in addition, there have been other attempts. They've attempted to um, be included in the state budget. They have um, worked with folks within Governor Brown's administration to try to create incentives and subsidies for not only, you know, incineration as it is, but also for the thermal conversion, I say in quotes, technologies, which really are just a form of waste burning. And the the powerful pushback from folks on the ground has, has been really what's been keeping that from happening. Um, when so we have we're in a situation right now where China said that they don't really want our materials. I mean that happens every few years, anyways. But we have a lot of cities that are very concerned. They have legitimate concerns that they're not going to meet their mandated recycling and diversion goals. So they're looking at this as a good idea to do incineration. What um, is waste energy the next best solutions, or are there real environmental zero waste solutions that we should be uh, telling our cities that that are the better choice. What what um, the what the waste industry tries to do a good job of, of they try to do a good job of confu- confusing um, the public on what the impact of their of their of their facility and their technology really is, and what a waste incinerator does 
is number one, it it takes millions of dollars from local communities to be invested and locked in to one infrastructure. And the way an incinerator is built, it can't burn what it doesn't have. And so it creates a demand for waste. And so it is at odds fundamentally with zero waste recycling and just waste reduction overall. So what it's really... Um, it's really not a solution. Like I said, it locks cities into a system that creates a demand for waste, preventing waste reduction, reuse, and recycling. And then uh, it also prevents us from having the money to invest in our – this is an opportunity here in the U.S. for us to invest in our own domestic recycling infrastructure because it, um, recycling and zero waste can create 10 times the number of jobs that are, can be provided through traditional um, incineration or landfilling. And that creates a real opportunity for a just transition for these communities that are living in the shadow of these facilities. Exactly. And then also it's an opportunity to look upstream and redesign our products. Our products. So we only have two minutes left, and uh, before we conclude, I want to make sure that our listeners know how to further connect with, with both of you. And then my last question to Angelo is, what advice and encouragement would you provide others to, that find themselves fighting these burn facilities and, and that need that help? So, Amina, maybe you could tell us how to connect with Gaia, and then, Angelo, you can round it out. I'd be happy to. Um, so if you want to learn more about um, incineration and just hearing the, come, some real facts about it, you can go to our website, which is www.noburn, I'm sorry, no-burn.org. That's no-burn.org. Yeah, and to um, follow East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice, you can go to uicej.org. Um, you can also follow um, East Yard Communities on Facebook and follow the um, hashtag we're just trying to breathe. Um, also, I would just encourage folks out there that are up against facilities like trash to power um, incinerators or other polluting facilities to really continue to speak truth to power. Um, do not fold under the pressure, whether that's you know from your local city council or your local senator that sometimes is making good decisions, but other times is is trying to pass legislation that would uh, continue facilities like this to continue to speak truth to power, to continue to have faith in your community, and continue to fight the good fight. Thank you. Thank you, Amina and Angelo, for helping our listeners understand the complexity of this beastly issue. You have been listening to Amina Maxi, U.S. and Canada Regional Coordinator for Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives, and Angelo Logan with the Moving Forward Network and co-founder of East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice. Thank you for joining Ecojustice Radio on 90.7 KPFK. And that is it for our show. Thank you for tuning in to Ecojustice Radio here on 90.7 KPFK. I want to thank Angelo and Amina for coming on to the show. Ecojustice Radio is brought to you by SoCal 350 and KPFK. Executive producer Mark Morris, interview hosted by Jessica Aldridge, and original music by Javier Cadre. My name is J.P. Morris, and until next time, remember... The power is yours.